0: care on the blog talk radio and affiliate networks is brought to you by National ACO. National ACO is one of forty four participants admitted as a next generation model ACO by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, is experiencing strong growth, was nation leading in its first performance year and now has logged five years of successful operations. National ACO, a physician-owned, operated, and governed ACO, is leading innovation in the value-based healthcare alternative payment model and population health management world. Welcome everyone. I'm Greg Masters, your producer and moderator, known to some on Twitter as at Two Health Guru and the publisher of ACOWatch.com. I'm joined in the virtual studio today by national ACL co-founders, Dr. Andre Berger, CEO, and Dr. Alex Foxman, President and Chief Medical Officer, respectively. And now for today's special guest, Julian Malinick is president of Canvas Medical, whose mission is to advance clinical medicine through empirical science, powerful technology, and supremely usable design. On today's show, we're going to cover a wide range of topics, including the evolution of ACO benchmarking methodologies, including the major issues with benchmarking the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services' vision for how different ACO models, including next-gen ACOs and various shared savings program tracks, fit together, day-to-day life at CMS, which should be fascinating, how issues are prioritized, interactions with model participants, what type of feedback to CMS tends to be most effective, the role of EMR or EHR and population health platforms for ACOs, and more. So with that introduction, Drs. Berger and Foxman, over to you. Help us get to know Julian, his work at Canvas Medical, and uh, his take on the state of the accountable care industry.
1: Well, thank you, Julian. Thanks for the uh, for being here. Uh, I want to start out more about about you, and, and I've always been really uh, fascinated with the, the back-end understanding of how CMS works. I've always envisioned and imagined CMS being almost like the, uh, the Wizard of Oz, where uh, there is this wizard somewhere deep inside a, a castle and uh, you know, we, we throw questions in there and we're not sure what comes out, but ultimately something comes out of there we don't know how that works. So maybe you could enlighten us and let us know your experience of, of what it was like uh, to work with CMS and CMMI and, and also how you actually got there from, from your education.
2: Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me on the show. So I came to CMS, I think, for the reason that a lot of my colleagues at the Innovation Center did, which was we worked in various places and we saw, uh, you know, what's the biggest uh, influencer of healthcare policy and uh, what's the biggest influencer of the health insurance industry. And, you know, by far it's Medicare, right? And uh, unlike other industries where, you know, the private sector really drives innovation uh, in the health insurance industry, Um, A lot of innovation is driven by Medicare, and that's simply driven by the fact that Medicare is the biggest, uh, the biggest payer by far for most uh, organizations. And so if you're a hospital, uh, you're going to really pay attention to what CMS is doing. And so that's really what drove me to to go to Medicare. I was at McKinsey and company working with private insurance companies, and I saw continually that they were really looking to CMS for leadership um, in terms of uh, uh, value based care, um, among other things. And so I uh, went to this place called the Innovation Center that I know a lot of listeners are are probably familiar with, um, created by the Affordable Care Act, Section 3021, uh, to test innovative payment and service delivery models uh, to reduce program expenditures while preserving or enhancing the quality of care furnished to individuals under such titles. I'm actually reading from uh, the, the act there. Um, and so uh, the Innovation Center was pretty unique, actually, in that uh, it was a completely new Department of CMS, and so um, you know it, it sort of grew at like a startup pace, right? I mean, when I I went there, and it was you know maybe 80 people, and by the time I left, it was a few hundred, um, and that's just pretty unusual for for the federal government, right? Um, you know, a lot of people coming to CMMI—that's uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, the acronym for the Innovation Center—were coming from outside the agency. Um, really coming to, to try to make a difference in healthcare. Um, you know, day to day, uh, so split up into, into several different groups. I was in what's called the seamless care models group. So worked mainly on accountable care organizations and uh, primary care medical models. I was the finance lead for the pioneer and next generation ACO methodology. So that means coming up with the financial models, uh, talking with ACOs about their financial results. Um, you know interfacing with with other parts of the agency to to deal with risk adjustment and all those all those good issues um, and i think i think it it did have that feeling to me of like people would always be surprised that there was just cms like anywhere else it's just a place with people working and you know there's not any sort of magic about prioritizing issues it's often just a group of us would get together and we'd say, you know, what do we think is, is most important to prioritize here? And we can talk a little bit more about that, but I think you're absolutely right that even for me, the first few months I was there, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm a federal regulator, you know, and that, that comes with a lot of responsibility. Um, it's really an honor to be a public servant. You know, um, you are uh, you're getting paid by the taxpayers to, um, you know, do whatever the mission of the, the agency you're at is. So it was it was an honor to be at CMS.
1: So you're stating there are no wizards oh, and no aliens at CMS. Is that correct?
2: <laughs> I mean, sure. yeah, there, there's no wizards, no aliens, uh, just a bunch of hardworking folks and then, uh, and then different contractors. I think that's another thing that was, that was really interesting to me when I was there, uh, the role of contractors in the federal government. So, you know, with the Next Generation ACO program, for example, um, there was a group of us who really led the program, but then there were, you know, about three or four really key contractors who were, in a sense, a member of the team. Um, you know, they would, I would talk with some of these folks, you know, several times a week. Um, and, and so it, it, and, and generally they were pretty good actually. Um, you know, there's a lot of inefficiencies about the, the contracting process. Um, but you know, they were quite good. I think one thing that, that, that struck me at CMS was just the, the lack of capacity, right? Like, and I think this has become a little more of a concern for me lately, so I mean, the, the next generation ACO model, which, you know, now has many participants and is, is spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, is run by a team of less than 10 people at CMS. Like, these are, these are incredibly small teams, right? Like, like, I was the only one, uh, or probably me and two other people at the Innovation Center were really equipped to answer questions coming from ACOs about their financial reports And, and as, as you know, from, from national ACO, like you have these questions that are worth millions of dollars. Right. And here I am, you know, someone who I think is a fairly smart guy, but you know, is, you know, just one person. Right. And I'm getting bombarded with questions from, you know, at one point it was, you know, 15 different, 20 different pioneer ACOs and several new next generation participants. And so, I think it's really like a heroic job that the folks at CMS are doing, um, given the, given the limited capacity. Um, and I, and I think it's somewhat concerning that, you know, I, I worry that the current administration doesn't realize that and isn't really prioritizing, you know, making sure that hiring is, is keeping pace with the needs of these programs.
3: Thank you for that uh, enlightening kind of comment that really does, um, you know, put a different perspective on what might be the perception uh, that's out there about um, you know the administrative depth of the programs, uh, Julian. Um, uh, a couple of things that are of interest to me, uh, right? Just to start out here. So, I know that you have left the uh, CMMI and you've moved on to to uh, start up, be uh, involved in a new organization called Canvas Medical. Now, I just love the name Canvas because, to me, Canvas, there's so many things you can think about with Canvas. And, and uh, for example, a, a blind canvas in which, you know, you can create, you know, a, a masterpiece. Uh, <laughs> or, or a, a canvas is a sale that will take you on a great adventure forward. You know, there's a lot of great ways of looking at Canvas. Uh, but tell me, what is, uh, in your experience, um, because you're dealing with innovation, because the CMMI was kind of dedicated to achieve the goal that you well articulated of the uh, ACA, um, how is that canvas constructed and how is it continuing in your, from your experience, continuing to change and morph as we move through these program the program?
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think, I think there's a few strains there, right? So, one thing that's interesting about the Innovation Center was that it's really meant to test these models and and expand them, right? Like, you know, continually when I was there, we would have meetings and, and it would, you know, really be saying if we, you know, look a few years into the future, if we don't have models that have been expanded, then the Innovation Center will not have have worked as well, right? And so I think one thing to really that was really interesting was, was that, right? Like the innovation center was meant as a place where you test a bunch of stuff and then a few things work. And I think that's, that's one really unique part about it that I think is, you know, now, like I live in San Francisco, there's tons of startups. They, they fail all the time. Some of them become enormously successful. It's, it's part of the bedrock of what we think of as innovation in the corporate sector, right? Is you're going to have a lot of little experiments and, you know, venture capitalists are going to fund them and some of them are going to succeed. And um, it's it sort of, from a holistic perspective, it works out, right? That's not how the federal government usually works. The federal government usually just has these big programs and they're uh, legislated and then they exist for a very long period of time. But the Innovation Center was saying, no, let's actually fund 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 different models. And maybe we'll just have a handful of them. Maybe we'll just have five or six of them that are actually successful. um, And then we'll expand those. And that's something that I think is, it's just so contrary to how, a lot of the federal government works, which is just, you know, we have a program, it's going to be there for 30 years, you know, maybe it'll stay along longer than it should. And I think that's something that's so unique and precious about the Innovation Center is just the the idea of rapid experimentation within government. Um, you know, so that's that's one thing that I think is, is very special. Um, I think there's a lot of disagreement and it, it sort of, it doesn't fall neatly in partisan lines, um, but there's a lot of disagreement about how much pressure the innovation center should be using to further some of its goals. And so uh, one big dimension here is whether models should be voluntary or involuntary, right? So one big thing about ACO models is that they're voluntary, right? So you can choose to join an ACO model or you, you can choose not to. So in that sense, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of, really complain about the innovations and are placing this big burden on, on organizations from ACOs. But if you look at some of the bundled payment models, um, you know, like uh, you know, the, the, the joints model, these are, these are in specific, um, you know, sort of Metro areas. Right. And so uh, if you're in this Metro area, you're now subject to this new payment structure. And so I think there are some people um, at, at, at leadership levels now who would sort of say, well, that's, that's sort of unduly, um, burdening people by forcing them to be in this innovation model. Right. Um, you know, I tend to think that having those mandatory models, uh, maybe not in the ACO space, but in, in bundled payments or in other, in other types of arrangements is probably a good thing. Um, but I think that's the, that's the concern now. Um, uh, that's one concern I have. Um, you know is that something that that resonates with with you guys at all the, the the sort of the the fact that all these models are voluntary well uh i let me just
3: follow up on that's a great question so for us uh this lends to the concern or the interest in sustainability in other words you know us and other ACOs have really invested in in innovation uh and, and being part of this uh, to create um, kind of a model that, uh, you know, can, be, can evolve, uh, can improve, but definitely, you know, can be sustainable or can grow into something, you know, a, a next paradigm based upon, you know, the experience, as you pointed out, some of the successes. So uh, I think it's a great question as to what a CMS, what CM am I doing now looking forward into the next three or four years uh, you know, beyond what's happening today, and and what are, how are they addressing the question of sustainability of the programs that they've
2: laid out? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think one thing there are some areas that CMS hasn't that seem like hasn't really focused as much on um, that that I think the new administration may try to focus more on. So Medicare Advantage in particular is one. If you look at the portfolio of um, innovation center models, they're all focused on, you know, A and B, right? Uh, they're all focused on traditional Medicare, which, you know, a lot of beneficiaries in traditional Medicare, they're not focused, you know, on Medicare Advantage, at least the, the vast majority. So I think even, the, you know, that a lot of folks in the new administration, I think, really want to see a transition to much more people in Medicare Advantage, which I tend to think would actually not be a bad idea. Um, but, um, you know, that you're going to see more focus on the innovation center um, towards, you know, Medicare Advantage focused models. Um, now, I think on, on the ACO side, uh, there needs to be, and I think there will be a focus on trying to put the, the, the lessons from the innovation center models into the shared savings program. I mean, that's, that's always been the vision, right? It's been, uh, like when I was there, we had the shared savings program track one and track two and track one was an upside risk only model and track two had some downside risk. And then you had the pioneer SEO model in the innovation center, right? And, and the shared savings program, by the way, those are, that's a permanent program that's not in the innovation center. And so most, the vast majority of ACOs are in the shared savings program, which is, uh, just a permanent Medicare program. It's not run from within the Innovation Center. And so the the vision for ACOs is a bit unique in that it's sort of saying, we have this permanent vehicle, the Shared Savings Program, and it has these different tracks. And we're going to test different features of ACOs in the Innovation Center. And when those are successful, we'll sort of expand them in the context of the Shared Savings Program. So with Pioneer, what happened was, you know, the pioneer model essentially became track three of the shared savings program. Um, And then, you know, there's sort of talk that, you know, maybe next gen ACO will eventually become another track of the shared savings program. Um, Because I think that the problem with if that doesn't happen is that these innovation center models are are limited time. Right. And so, you know, you're making investments that are incredibly expensive and complex. And so you sort of need to know that this model is going to be around for the long haul. Um, so I, I think there'll be, um, you know, if, if the next generation model saves money, it'll become yet another track in the shared savings program, which is, you know, if it saves money, wow. right, which is a big F.
3: Well, actually, it's interesting to bring that up. Just one more point here, and then I'll let Dr. Foxman get his dibs on you. But if you look at the 2016, the first cohort, next gen, and you look at the percentage that's saved, versus the percentage that did not save, um, that was way higher um, historically than it's been even in the MSSP. I think that's an interesting statistic, don't you?
2: That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the – and a few things could back, could cause that, right? So one could be selection. You know, the people that are joining uh, the next-gen model are, are sort of those who are more able to save. It could be due to the some – financial calculation itself is a lot different. Um, You know, I I tend to think that that the next gens that that I got to know, um, you know, including now national ICO, like are a lot more sophisticated and and tend to be making bigger investments in really doing the work. Um, I mean, a lot of the SSP ICOs are too, but I think with the next gens, you're like, you're not gonna be in a model where you're you're at full risk or near full risk unless you're really doing the work. that is really interesting. And I think, I, I think there is a danger that CMS will sort of be throwing participants, you know, around, right? Like a lot of folks, they went from Pioneer, maybe uh, to NextGen, you know, to MSSP. It's, it's a lot of change to, to handle,
1: yeah, you know, what, what we found and, and what we, we were very excited about when we first got into value-based care and ACOs and so forth is that the whole program wasn't just about saving money. And, and by saving money, there's lots of different things that people could do uh, in the healthcare community to save money. But it was also closely tied to the improvement of, of, in quality, improvement of quality care for the, for the beneficiary or the patient, but also the improvement of the satisfaction of care as well, and we found that this combination of tying all of this together was extremely um, interesting and extremely important to provide high level of care at a lower cost. But the issues that I think many ACOs are facing nationally is what we know as benchmarking in, in um, accountable care organizations and in value based programs. And and I wanted to get your insights of how. This benchmarking methodology has has progressed, and how it is right now in the next generation ACO model versus how it was in the MSSP, and what you think the next kind of iteration of this may be to provide a shall we say a, a bigger carrot to, to the healthcare community to to perform. Yeah,
2: it's, it's I mean benchmarking is the the central issue with ACOs. It's going to determine whether they're successful and whether people join. Um, now, I think the the main issue. I think the biggest issue with, with ACO benchmarking comes down to what I'll call the sort of historical benchmark, um, right, versus sort of an absolute benchmark. So typically with, with, the, with the Medicare Shared Savings Program initially or the Pioneer model, it was really more of a historical benchmark, right? So it was looking at your cost uh, a few years back and saying that, you know, if you sort of need to beat beat your historical cost right so it's sort of akin to if you're a really fast runner um you know you need to keep improving right and it was a big problem when i was there because medicare was actually experiencing really sort of uh historically low expenditure growth in the you know now it's picked up a little bit but but in the past few years and so there were a lot of ACOs that were already efficient, right? And they had data to support the fact that they were efficient relative to their region. Um, but they weren't really getting credit for that, right? Because they were, they were then held to this really low reference trend or national trend. Um, and so that was, that was sort of the number one complaint of ACOs. And, and a lot of them were really right on the money about it. Right. I mean, and if you, if you look at the results of the pioneer model or the MSSP model, You know, a lot of the the savings, you know, the majority of the savings has really gone to those, you know, what I'll call inefficient regions, right? So areas where there's a lot more sort of, you know, fat to cut out of the system, which in some ways makes sense, right? Like that's that's where we want to be, you know, incenting. But, you know, you don't want something where you sort of have a model that doesn't allow for participants to stay in it over a long period of time, right? Because then people just won't want to join at all. Um, and so at CMS, the understanding was always, let's move to what I'll call, a, you know, sort of an absolute benchmark, right? And so this is something more like what, you know, what Medicare Advantage has, frankly, right? Which is, I mean, to, to grossly simplify, is to say that there's, you know, sort of each region of the country has, you know, some some sort of unit cost and you just risk adjusted according to the the to the beneficiary population, and boom, you get your benchmark, right? It's not it's not about your historical performance as an ACO is just about sort of the beneficiaries you have and their risk relative to the population. Um, Now, the problem there is that from CMS's perspective, uh, that can be really unfavorable in the context of a voluntary model, right? Because if you have people, if you have a model like that, you may have the sort of inefficient organizations just not join the model and the efficient organizations will join and they may just, get a windfall without actually doing anything right and we actually did this modeling so if you if you look at the shared savings program um you know it goes from this what i'll call a historical benchmark to a non-historical benchmark over the course of a few agreement periods and the reason that it it goes gradually and it takes you know several agreement periods to get to that point where the the you know the the non-historical benchmark is significant is because cms doesn't want to be you know, we did that modeling and it, it, it looked like CMS would just be paying a lot because you would have selection into the model. Um, now I, I think what what needs to happen is that there need to be sort of more carrots generally. And so Macra is one thing that helps a little bit, right? I don't know. You guys have probably talked about Macra on the show before and assuming folks know the the Medicare Access and Ship Reauthorization Act. Gives this little carrot to, to join alternative payment models. I think we need more things like that to really entice people to be in these types of models generally. Um because you can't sort of continually expect people to improve, right? At some point you have to say, you know what, you've you've done the work. We're not gonna keep, you know, ratcheting the um the, the measure on you. Does that does that make sense? It's it's a complicated sure. issue, but it's one that it <laughs> like is like the, the no, core makes, issue for the
3: ACOs. Makes perfect sense. I wanna shift the conversation a little bit into kind of another area that you are now involved with. So it has to do with the idea of, um, you know, technology, really data. Um, I loved your kind of mission statement for your new company, which is advancing clinical medicine through empirical science, powerful technology, and the usable design. So my question really is, uh, is that basically, for the most part, when we look at, accountable care. We're looking at accountable care within the context of population health management. And this is a data kind of driven industry. And uh, data rules. I mean, that's the fact. Um, Can you talk to me about what you see going forward in closing the bridge between kind of um, retrospective data that would be coming from the CCLF files versus real-time data, which would include you know, some interoperability, some connectivity with EMRs. I know that's an area of interest of yours. And using this kind of data in a more advanced way for, shall we say, um, identifying the various uh, population risks and also uh, employing some predictive analysis and actionable things Uh, that could be done to mitigate um,
2: predictable spending that's unnecessary? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I sort of separate into two categories. And the one that, so Canvas Medical, we're we're essentially an EMR company, and we're really focused on independent primary care and and the folks that care about independent primary care, which are, you know, ACOs and payers and IPAs. Um, Now, I think one thing that is sort of overlooked and and that really struck me when I talked to ACOs is, the challenge of actually getting people to use data right so even with retrospective data or prospective data or however good the data is you sort of need the the end users the clinicians and the clinical teams to use it and what i continually saw was you know there would be these great population health applications that would take data and modify it in interesting ways and present it in in you know great ways for folks to see but You know, providers I would talk to would say, well, you know, my EMR requires me to go through, you know, 100 clicks and I'm I'm overburdened with just the basic tasks of sort of managing my EMR that I don't really have time to look in this separate population health application. And so the administrators of ACOs would have trouble sort of driving usage of their pop health applications. So I think ultimately there just needs to be more of a focus on on usability. And I'm I'm not suggesting that, you know, population health applications don't have a place. I just think there there needs to be more of a focus on both EMR usability but also integration of of pop health in the EMRs so so that fr- from the from the provider's perspective they're just sort of interacting with one interface maybe the interface is like some combination of their EMR and you know pop health tools that are coming into the EMR but it it needs to be unified in in a really simple interface and that's that's what we're trying to do um I think that the point about real time data is 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 a great one and one that cms i think has a lot of there's a lot of potential there right i mean the cclfs are it's like you get something uh, you know great my patient was in the hospital four weeks ago you know like that's not it's not as useful as it could be and so um i i ultimately think that cms needs to like like now i'm a believer in in market solutions for these technology problems right so i think that if CMS can keep the business case up for care coordination and for interoperability, then providers will demand it, right? So if if we keep if we keep ACOs going strong, uh, then uh, ACOs will demand that vendors, uh, you know, interoperate, right, and create these new applications. And I think that's the best path forward.
3: Julian, thank you so much. You, you've really enlightened us tremendously with some of your great thoughts and. We hope to actually get you back for more because this has been an extremely valuable and interesting time. And thank you on behalf of myself, Dr. Fox, and National ACO, and uh, all of us. Happy holidays, and and thank you so much. Hope to see
2: you again soon. Thanks so much.
0: And that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I do want to thank our guest, Julian Malinick, president of Canvas Medical, for his time. And insights and a more detailed description of his bio is included on the Block Talk Radio channel page. Stay current with Julian's work on Twitter via at Julian Malinick, and that's J-U-L-I-A-N-M-A-L-I-N-A-K, as well as at Canvas Medical, and on the web via www.canvasmedical.com. Finally, do follow National ACO on the web via www.nacomso.com and on Twitter via at NACOMSO as well. Our next broadcast is Tuesday, December 19th with nationally recognized for her leadership in the administration of healthcare organizations, June Simmons, the president and CEO of Partners in Care Foundation. Until then, for Drs. Berger and Foxman, this is your moderator, Greg Masters, wishing you a safe, prosperous, and healthy holiday season. I now